Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie and again I am here with my lovely co-host Michelle. Hi Michelle. Hi Stephanie. And we have a special treat for you today because we're here with Professor Tony Cousins who is a lecturer in Shakespeare and um, the Renaissance at Macquarie University here in Sydney, Australia. So Professor Cousins is Australia's leading Shakespeare expert. He's published extremely mm -hmm. widely on Shakespeare and his contemporaries. He has just completed some work on Shakespeare's sonnets, as well as he's got some work on um, Shakespeare's soliloquies that's about to come out soon. And he's the editor of the Shakespeare Encyclopedia, which sounds extremely impressive and is extremely impressive. And he's also a big Futurama fan. So <laughs> <laughs> welcome, Tony. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I demur a little about the kind introduction saying I'm <laughs> Leading, I'm not, <laughs> but I don't think there is a leading. I think there's a cluster of us who are interested in Shakespeare. That's okay. I am. I am quite willing to give you that title, and if anyone wants to okay. object, they can come directly you can slug to me. It up <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. So we thought of having this this session about um, King Lear mm. because I was recently at the Sydney Writers Festival and I heard James Shapiro talk about his new book Shakespeare. Um, 1606, sorry, Shakespeare and the Year of Lear, and so I thought we'd open with. What exactly is important about 1606? Yeah, well, I think 1605 is actually more interesting than <laughs> 1606 because 1605 is the year of the gunpowder plot mm -hmm. when people try to blow up James and the whole point about blowing up James is that his father was blown up. <laughs> so his mother was judicially executed and his father was blown up and it's clear that the idea was to have James in the last nanoseconds of... Uh, consciousness realising that he was dying the same way his father did. So <laughs> James was very scared of physical violence for obvious reasons and very sensitive about threats or perceived threats to his authority. He's a person who has a very powerful belief in the divine right of people such as himself to rule and therefore the play really, if we're going to historicise it, um, is interesting because 1606 is a year of political uncertainty, but 1605 is the great year of political uncertainty. And the way that 20th century people produced King Lear was as if it were timeless. Mm -hmm. But in fact, uh, even though the play is set in uh, a mythical Britain far, far away, the whole point of the thing is that right from the very beginning it speaks to topical anxieties and fears for Shakespeare's audience. Mm. Now, I don't think that said that, in my view, it particularly addresses the gunpowder plot, but I think when you get that bit of preliminary exchange amongst uh, uh, Kent and, and Gloucester and Edmund, two issues are raised immediately which spoke to the fears and anxieties of Shakespeare's audience. It's a bit like uh, a television episode of a police procedural from America where someone talks about terrorism or a bag being left in the Empire State Building uh, gallery or something like that, uh, it's going to grab the immediate attention of the, the audience. And the two issues that are raised quite explicitly right at the front of the play are, first, anxiety about the continuity of stable governance in England, mm -hmm. Um, there's the whole point about division of the kingdom, which is a, a, a light switch phrase for me. The way I see that addressing anxieties is the Tudor dynasty had come from a civil war. Uh, people weren't by any means expecting civil war 
when James was on the throne, but they were aware that when Elizabeth was in her old age, succession had been a real issue that worried people. And James's extravagant governance in terms of financially extravagant governance that was financially ruining the country, his playing of favourites, his granting of monopolies, his selling of knighthoods, all these kinds of things that people were worried about uh, made them anxious about continuity of stable government. So when the play says division of the kingdom, Shakespeare immediately points to the possibility of civil disturbance and a kingdom divided against itself. So that's one anxiety that's lurking more or less in the background, but not so far in the background for Shakespeare's audience in the theatre. The other really directly concerns Edmund, because Edmund uh, is a person who's a younger son and very concerned about the fact that he will inherit nothing. Uh, That his father, in other words, will leave everything as the Lord dictated to the older son, and there's a debate in Shakespeare's time around uh, the time when the play itself is actually produced debating the issue of inheritance and whether younger sons should be excluded from inheritance and we know from the play how Edmund's sense of dispossession turns him against his society and makes him exploit it so the play is certainly speaking to current anxieties right from the get-go so when audiences saw the, that first that opening scene with, with King Lee dividing his kingdom in three, that would have been a real anxiety touch point for them. Oh, look, I think so. Uh, a lot of people teach the play, and in fact when the play was first taught to me, uh, as if somehow the beginning were just this kind of bearable enough prologue that introduced a subplot. Whereas <laughs> in fact I think what it does is in the very large disorderly playhouses in which Shakespeare and his contemporaries worked where people have to have their attention grabbed from the very outset you have to have some mechanism for focusing them Mm -hmm. then I think this kind of opening focuses the attention or helps focus the attention of the audience onto the big issues that are going to confront the, uh, the play characters and their issues that will speak to the audience on the other side of the stage. Mm. I was wondering if you might say something about the source text of King Lear. I mean, I know it's a kind of historical sort of sort of story, but um, the, the King Lear that preceded King Lear. Yeah, I think <laughs> one of the things that we are usefully reminded of is that in Shakespeare's time, putting on plays was very contentious. Going to plays was something held by a number of people to be a doubtful kind of experience for someone to undergo. And the authorities of Elizabeth's time don't like large, unruly, potentially disorderly groups of people meeting in environments where they can't be under the usual degree of surveillance to which they're subjected. So as a result, you can't talk about contemporary religion and you can't talk about contemporary politics they're no-go areas because all plays are licensed so if you want to have your play licensed you can't talk about contemporary religious issues you can't talk about contemporary politics so what people do is reach back to the past and they reach back to mythology or they reach back to mythic history they reach back to fable as a way of raising safely 
issues of current interest for the people who are looking at the plays. And we know that this is something that they chose to do because some playwrights uh, and poets actually make a point of saying that this is how you discuss contemporary hot topics. Mm. So I think what Shakespeare is doing is something that he always, or pretty much always does, he reaches back to an available narrative which is a story that has a, a strong development to it and potential for developing interesting characterizations. And he makes that his own and turns it into something that enables him to address the interests of his audience. And so that's what I think he's doing. I think primarily he's reaching back to the past because Shakespeare for about a decade uh, produces, uh, brings out at least two plays a year. Uh, the Elizabethan Jacobean stage consumes plays. Plays are literally kind of consumed. There's this terrible pressure on people actually to produce plays because the bottom line is that writing plays is all about money. Mm. So when you have this pressure on you to produce to get interesting material out which will guarantee the continued financial success of your theatrical company, then you reach for materials that are going to let you really work successfully with them and allow you to produce something that will grab an audience's attention and make them want to come to the playhouse. So the thing about the uh, original Lear is that the story, of course, as you know, is quite different. Um, the the whole kind of setup is quite different as is the case with Macbeth. So Shakespeare is really taking the mythic history of Britain which will resonate with the audience and turning it round into something which will speak directly to the contemporary audience's concerns. Well the original King Lear from what I understand having never read the initial King Lear was ended happily. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So what a shock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in, in fact, that's a very interesting point because uh, one of the things that Samuel Johnson in the 18th century writes uh, when he's writing about Shakespeare is that he can't bear to look at King Lear again, having read it once. Mm. He says it affects him so much because of the, the loss of a child, lost a child himself, that he can't bear to go through the death of Cordelia. And around that time audience was were very struck by the bleakness of the ending and so Nahum Tate famously rewrote the ending of King Lear where mm. Edgar marries Cordelia and they all <laughs> live happily ever after right which is the popular production that's the popular way to have it performed this is a bit before Shakespeare's time but close enough yeah, no, I, I'm quite aware of the, the 18th century kind of happy ending and oh, it always yeah. strikes me such an 18th century rainbow, cop yeah. out yeah 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 <laughs> Um, look, I, I, I think uh, reading King Lear, I, I was I was struck by I guess first of all you know sort of that notion of the the, the three daughters and mm. then just how depraved it gets towards the end with <laughs> um, you know sort of this <laughs> this marvelous um, sort of sibling rivalry over. Uh, Edmund um, mm. resulting in, 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 you know, sort of, I guess, what is it, suicide? Or, <laughs> um, and, and then I think the other thing that struck me was um, actually the character of, of Edgar as old Tom. 
uh, and 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 the choice of of you know sort of not of, of you know sort of the the, the the madness and the the the, the sort of the, the the poverty and the the quite explicit nature of, yeah. of of his his being in those scenes which you know given the the storm the 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 the, the, the cold the bitter bitter surrounds the the hovel you know the hovel and and then this 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 um this this figure taken from on high you know as as you know sort of son as 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 inherited and chosen one and and then to the the the, the sort of the position of mm. of wise but um utterly tragic mm. um mm. beggar um, well the bleakness of the play i think is really what helped make it so popular after world war 2 mm. um after world war well after World War Two, for a while, I think Lear rivals or eclipses Hamlet in popularity because since the, the very early 19th century, um, Hamlet was the great play uh, where you have the, as, as they would see it, romantic hero in isolation from his society and you know, there are Delacroix's illustrations to the play presenting Hamlet and Horatio in a very elaborate, uh, romanticised uh, costuming, uh, walking through the landscape sort of thing. But after the 20th century, a guy called uh, Jan Kott, uh, this would be early to mid-60s, wrote a, a book that had a lot of attention uh, around that time called Shakespeare, Our Contemporary. And uh, he, uh, like a number of other people, was uh, very conscious of how this play could speak to post-World War II Europe. You know, a devastated world, uh, a world that had turned in on itself, devastated itself, and then was left confronting the ruins. So the very bleakness that you're speaking to and the, the starkness with which people are left to consider their own humanity is something that people like Jan Kott or George Steiner, with the Holocaust in mind in particular, could could find uh, immediately compelling. Because I guess also, of course, you've got sort of that resurrection notion as well. Because I mean, he's he's I think he's virtually in a loincloth, and he's got his five, mm. you know, the five wounds and the five clothes that he's had, and and um, so I, I guess the. I, I guess the, the the feminist in me railed <laughs> a little bit in in terms of the the sort of the disintegration between um, Regan and Goneril, mm -hmm. and then I, I, I sort of initially was was confronted by by sort of Cordelia's sort of silence in the in the opening mm. and 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 that determined um, refusal of eloquence, which of course makes makes sense in a world where you're 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 sort of trying to at one and the same time make use of rhetoric but at the same time sort of um, be uneasy with it and, 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 and critical of that that um, you, you know sort of that second um, tongue I guess um, yeah well that's that's a really interesting point because um, Cordelia is we talk, started out talking about historicizing and Cordelia is sometimes used as a, a poster child for various historicist agendas. For example, one way of reading the play uh, is to try and use it as a kind of mirror for your own concerns and preferences and priorities. And some people have tried to argue that, well, one in particular, that the play is, is really all about 
the experience of the social and political disadvantage experienced by Catholics in in Elizabethan and then Jacobean England and thereby turning Cordelia into a poster child for suffering recusant Catholicism. So but, Cordelia is like a martyr figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah and she, she embodies for some people true religion mm. and, and so on and so on. Um, but I think uh, as when you look at Cordelia as distinct from Goneril and Reagan, and I'll get onto that in a second, I find um, Cordelia really interesting because surely what happens at the start of the play is that Cordelia's characterization, coming back to your uh, anxiety, which I think is exactly right, about silence, um, resists that kind of easy idealization. Uh, one of the things that I think has been best written about the characterization was predictably enough by Coleridge when he wrote that uh, Cordelia is really her father's daughter and that's exactly right that the, the manic stubbornness that is so vociferous in Lear uh, at the start of the play is countered by no less a determined if not quite manic stubbornness which expresses itself through silence with his daughter and in fact the father and the favourite daughter understand one another very well he pushes and her first instinct is to push straight back just like daddy um, whereas Gonola and Regan who are watching daddy and favourite child play push against each other uh, must really be I think in terms of how we're to understand their characterizations, quite bemused because they understand at the beginning of the play oh so this is the game we're playing who loves daddy most? Well, you know, I have my spiel. The next one says, yeah, you know, me plus 50% and, you know, are, are, are we, can we go now kind of thing. <laughs> and then Cordelia says, well, I'm not playing. Mm. You know, flicks hair, I'm not playing. Uh, stomp a foot. And and Leah loses it. So there's that. With Goneril and, and Reagan later on, I think uh, what I found interesting about their characterization was the way that they have a way of looking at the world which is never articulated in exactly the same terms as Edmund expresses his um, in Act 1, Scene 2 at the start there with Thou nature art my goddess to thy law my services abound but clearly they find in him uh, someone who looks at the world in the way that they think the world actually works which is not the way that their father thinks it works and Cordelia's view of the world actually, I think, corresponds closely to her father's with some differences. And her father's view of the world is not so very different in some respects from the way King James looks at the world. Except that where I come out differently from some people is I have read some people saying, well, the play is a warning to James. In, in effect, this is what they're saying. Don't be like Lear. And that is such yeah, that is such a ridiculous concept, you know. You, you, the king is your direct patron because your acting company works directly for him. And this is the high point of your possibility as a as an actor, playwright, director, producer in in that world. I think it's actually much more possible to tie the play up with what um, uh, Shapiro. Um, does at the, the start of his book he, he talks about one of Ben Johnson's masks well I'm not suggesting that King Lear celebrates 
uh, James in the way that Johnson's masks celebrate James. But what I am saying is that rather than looking at the play and, and taking the line well, uh, this is uh, holding up for James a distorting mirror in which you say, I must not be like Leah. I think it's holding up a mirror of absolute kingship gone wrong in a pre-Christian society where one can think, but our society is Christian and we have an absolute monarch who is very different from Lear. So I think in its own subtle way, the play which is so bleak is actually able to be seen as celebratory in some respects of James. It was quite marvellous. I mean, um, just, I can't remember if it was Goner or, or, or Reagan, but you know, in terms of demonstrating a sort of an understanding of a, of a sort of a tyrannical and, mm. and, and rather arbitrary notion of what power is, I think there's a moment when, you know, that the, she's being critiqued for, for obviously all of the <laughs> horrendous stuff that's going on, and she sort of pretty much says, "Well, I make the rules." Sort of thing. So yeah. you know, so so there is no wrong because I, I say it's not, and um, of course she doesn't. Uh, she comes to a to a to sticky end. But I I, I still think that um, that that's a marvelous moment in 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 the play, um, and and a real awareness of the way um, how, you know, given the the shifts in 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 power that um, are very much a part of of a kingdom and 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 a monarchy. How, how tenuous well I think that's right because one of the things that Shakespeare keeps coming back to in, in, in a lot of his plays is um, the, the idea of tyrant tragedy and tyrant tragedy is very popular dramatic genre in Shakespeare's world because in a, a Europe of absolute rulers people are very interested in the potentiality of soul rule to go to extremes of uh, self-assertion and manipulation and exploitation. And so they're very interested by dramatic representations of tyranny. And Lear is, is a fascinating instance of the tyrant in a tyrant tragedy for a lot of reasons, but two of them, two of the more obvious are, one, that he's a tyrant who deposes himself at the start of the play so there's this extraordinary moment when a tyrant in full possession of power unquestioned power as his entrance onto the stage immediately shows he issues commands and there's no question that anyone is going to say ah but or query this in any way at all and so he's completely assured in his power in his possession of it so you've got a, a tyrant who deposes himself and you've got a tyrant who having deposed himself has to go and discover what it is to, uh, to be human and hence coming back to your point about Edgar in the hovel as poor Tom and so on Lear starts looking at what makes people human and he starts to render this in terms of um, acculturation but he also uh, starts raising another set of issues that people were debating at the time which is if there's natural law what is it and what does the law of nature if there is a law of nature incline us as human beings to do is it to tear one another to pieces or is it to 
and so you know as in Edmund's speech in Act 1 scene 2 survival of the fittest uh, a world of predators or is it a world where there are bonds instilled in us uh, that we can recognise but all too often fail to observe obligations that we should meet that don't meet that define our humanity and I think the play raises those very interestingly in connection with the whole idea of absolute power that has abused itself. I mean, as as theatre, I mean, you know, as as a sort of a self-conscious play, the the number of times that it's uh, sort of characters in their guises, where you know mm. they're finally properly seen for what they are. You know, sort of. I think you've got Leah sort of actually taking on board Kent when he expelled him for, for speaking frankly or when we've got those sort of scenes where um, you know got, uh, the, 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 the cat in the farmhouse or um, uh, Edgar as, as, as poor Tom and, and so you, you get this sort of dissembling and, and guises as, as, and, and sort of microcosms of I mean obviously as well, but plays within plays, where mm. um, you know it's a, it's a marvelous agenda in terms of an an audience and an audience's apprehension of something that is a little bit uncomfortable in a, in a, in, a, in a sort of a strictly conservative moral sense. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that ties in with, and again, um, a big cultural interest in the notion of transformation and debates that have been going on particularly since about 1500 in uh, continental humanism about the extent to which human beings are defined by their capacity for self-transformation and then by self-transformation they say transformation into what and that raises the, the question of not only what but how and so can you transform yourself significantly by willing to do that uh, so it's voluntarist or can you transform yourself by uh, only by some outside means such as grace so there are, there's a whole interest in disguise in the way that you're talking about and there's the, the cognate idea of transformation through disguise you know um, Lear goes through a process of transformation in a way by uh, stripping off things mm -hmm. by you know, reducing um, Edgar's survival mode is to put on a disguise the way Hamlet puts on a disguise and uh, moves through the world uh, one of the people who doesn't disguise himself Edmund for example does disguise himself one of the people who doesn't of course is is Kent um, but Kent is as you pointed out a person who's marginalised at the start of the play and he's marginalised at the end of the play yeah look it, I mean I, I think the other sort of uh, thing that I found in the sort of I guess the, the, the structure of that play was sort of the, the, the parallel plots with you know sort of Gloucester and, and, and Leah and, and the way that it sort of eventuated in this in this sort of crossing over of, of sort of paths and then this multiplying of, of complexities because you know you find yourself sort of trying to hold 
in your mind at once, you know, sort of the, the, the father betrayed by the daughters, the father betrayed by one son, the, the, mm. the, the sort of the plot of um, legitimacy versus the, the sort of the, I guess, the, the, um, the, the, the radical, um, you know, sort of, I guess, petulance of, 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 of Leah. Um, and it, it, it's funny how the, the play seems t to build um, in a way slightly differently to other plays of Shakespeare's because of that. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the things that keeps cropping up to my mind in Shakespeare's plays is his strong sense of personal obligations as something that we acknowledge theoretically and that we in almost invariably fail to observe as often as we should. And that keeps... He's very interested in that uh, and he's very interested in betrayal. Now, I don't say that that's because he personally is interested in that, but clearly he knows his audiences, whatever his views and preferences might be. So a lot of the powerful scenes in Shakespeare's plays are clearly connected with betrayal. You know, uh, Henry V's betrayal by Scroop, for example... Um, and uh, at the start of Lear, as you're pointing out, Lear is obsessed with the way that, his, and to his mind, his children have shown ingratitude after his paternal care and broken their obligations to him as their father. But when you take a look at the way that Lear is presented in terms of its complexities, I think that reaches out from the level of characterization and betrayal, patterns of betrayal and um, ob patterns of obligations not being observed. I think it reaches out into the very framework of the, the play itself. Uh, one of the things that has struck generations of, of readers of the play and uh, viewers of the play is the way that the gods are silent mm. and also the way in which there are so many different versions presented of the sacred throughout the play there are uh, different versions of the gods uh, there are different versions of the sacred and they're being appealed to all the time by different characters with different agendas and the gods simply don't intervene so this has led some people to say, oh, well, very clearly, then what you've got is uh, uh, a debunking of the idea of the sacred in this play. And it's a play in which you're taking a look at the world from the perspective of disbelief altogether in the sacred. And I think that's one of the reasons that the play was so appealing to audiences after World War II. The because, nihilism. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I'm uh, tying in with what you're saying, the whole kind of absurdism of then of human mm. activity in in the light of that that nihilism. Uh, but there's, it's not that there's an out or a get out of jail free card in connection with this, but there's something which makes us say, well, the play does present a kind of dialogical view of the sacred in which the sacred is appealed to, the sacred is identified, and the, the sacred doesn't manifest itself 
in the world of the play. It doesn't intervene in human relationships in the play. Um, you know, Albany says, I think it's Albany, just before Cordelia appears, the gods defend her. And then the next thing is the stage direction with uh, the lines, uh, enter Lear with Cordelia dead in his arms. Right, so you've got that stark juxtaposition. Mm. Uh, but the whole point of this is that, yes, that's right, but it's a play set in a pre-Christian world. It's a, it's a world before and completely outside Christian belief. And so, therefore, the expectations that might travel with different views, that they, they would be and could be very different, of uh, conceiving the, the universe in, in Christian terms, don't apply within the world of the play. Yeah. So that although the gods are everywhere and nowhere simultaneously the gods are everywhere and yet absent in the world of the play that is within the world of the play which is set inside a pre-Christian Britain mm. yeah because you I mean you've definitely got sort of um, pagan references all the way through all the way yeah. through and, and mm. but then also I think the mythological ones and, and you know sort of I think just as soon as you mentioned the gods I was thinking about that moment where I can't remember who the character is who says you know, we are to to the gods. Oh, like it's Gloucester. Flies are yeah, to, you know, as flies to wanton boys, we to the gods they kill us for their sport. Yeah, um, which you know is one of those lines that I think really um, stays with you throughout. But mm. I, I guess the imagery, though, you know, sort of of, of Leah walking in with his daughter in his arms, you know, and and I don't know the the, the, the sort of the the, the chronology the chronology of, of art and, 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 and things like that but you know sort of the, the, the imagery of poor Tom you know in his, in his, in his cloth and with his wounds mm. and you know sort of the, um, the image of, of, of you know sort of father carrying son the way mother you know sort of mm. holds Jesus you know like mm. that, that, that yeah. yeah I mean you know that, that very much seems to although mm. perhaps um, not within the, 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 the sort of the, at the level of the play um, you know, sort of obviously taking a step outside into the metaphoric, it, it oh, seems sure. to be functioning quite powerfully as, as a spiritual, um, yeah. you know, sort of element in a very Christian way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are there are visual signals, to put it that way, that do speak to the audience, saying that even though this is different from what you have around you yet you can recognise it in connection with what you have around you. Mm. Um, and just coming back to, to Edmund, I, I think it's a good way of, of illustrating this. I mean, uh, Edmund in Act 1, Scene 2 articulates this um, survival of the fittest worldview in his soliloquy, Thou nature art my goddess, to thy law my services abound. And it's clear that within the world of the play, this is heterodoxy this is unorthodox but at the same time picking up your point uh, in Shakespeare's time audiences would immediately have recognised this as an utterly conventional statement of a heterodox viewpoint in fact it's, it's unorthodoxy is completely conventional and orthodox because it's libertinism so it's uh, an appeal to natural law shorn of metaphysics and ethics and in that sense therefore Edmund, uh, within the world of the play, is someone who is identifying a divinity in non-Christian terms, because within the world of the play, that's what he's going to do. But 
people outside the world of the play can look at Edmund and say, oh yeah, okay, so he's articulating a libertine position, which he does, which is self-contradictory because, I mean, the whole notion of libertinism is about freedom, and yet the lexicon of that speech shows Edmund's obsession with his own illegitimacy, mm-hmm. um, illegitimate bastard, uh, are words that run through and through and through the the speech and he can't shake them out of his head and at the end of the play he recants it some good I mean to do before I go so the play definitely does have a way of not being contemporary in some respects because it's not going to talk about Catholicism, it's not going to talk about a whole range of things but it's talking about phenomena that speak to contemporary philosophical interests, political interests and such like. Well, I'm interested in the fact, um, to go back a bit to Cordelia, that a lot of um, modern productions of the play collapse Cordelia and the Fool into each each other and have often the same actor play Cordelia and the Fool. And, I mean, I think that's also a kind kind of... theatrical convenience because, you know, Cordelia disappears for a long time, the fool disappears at the end. Um, What do you you think that's about? Is there some kind of connection between Cordelia and the fool and what does the fool mean in this play? Yeah, I think that's, I think there there should be, now that you mention it, a a new book on on Shakespeare's fools and clowns. it, it may be that one appeared months ago and I just haven't caught up with it yet. Or maybe that someone, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, someone is working on it now and I just don't know about it. But, uh, yeah, Shakespeare's obviously, as you're, you're right in saying, very interested in fools and clowns who are truth speakers. And, uh, I, maybe there, there are two things there. One of them is the whole idea of doubling. People are interested in the, practicalities of theatrical production in Shakespeare's world, what the stage was actually like uh, how you actually worked the machinery and what that could do and what it couldn't do Uh, and then uh, how you could get actors going off stage changing costume and coming back on to double up in role play, so there's been a lot of interest in that and I think doubling Cordelia and the Fool certainly reflects an interest in Elizabethan Jacobean theatrical practices Mm. but no less equally and clearly it shows the concern for identifying Cordelia and the Fool as being similar in as much as they're choric in function and they're truth tellers they're truth speakers in the play like Kent so they have a kind of choric function in so far as they point Lear in the direction of what Elizabethan and Jacobean audiences would have identified as right reason that is not just what's logical but what is morally sound a kind of rational and morally appropriate apprehension of the world around you so the fool and Cordelia in their different ways point up to Lear what right reason would be given that he's abusing right reason by his conduct so often throughout the play in as much as he's uh, a self-dispossessed and displaced tyrant who still thinks that he's the centre of his world. And and fool, the fool disappears from the play quite 
abruptly. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. not, I'm interested to know how you read that because I, there's been kind of a lot of discussion about that in the, in the criticism. Yeah, and my poor fool is hanged. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, people have debated for a long time, as you would know, whether that's a reference to uh, Cordelia, who is, is hanged and cut down by Lear, um, or whether it's a reference to the fool himself. And uh, personally, the way I read the lines is I see it as a reference to the fool. Mm. Cordelia is hanged and the fool is hanged. And given, you know, supposing that they were doubled on the stage, then appropriately they both die the same way. Mm. But uh, when he says, he doesn't say, my poor fool is hanged, meaning, which could obviously mean Cordelia. He says, and, meaning, obviously. In addition, my poor fool is hanged. Now, he might mean, and everything is going to hell in the handbasket, my poor fool is hanged. Or he might mean, which I take it he does, here is Cordelia dead in my arms, and my poor fool is hanged. Mm. So I think that accentuates the, the sense of loss that pervades the play. You know, the new world order doesn't exist, there's just governance by survivors. Well, and the, and the play is littered with dead bodies at the end. You know, yeah. almost everybody's dead. That's right. It's, <laughs> bring it's, on Goneril. Bring on Regan. Yeah. <laughs> I've, always felt, I've always felt sorry for Goneril and Regan because I've often thought that Leah is actually acting really badly. You know, turning up with these hundred drunk knights and, yeah. and you know, oh, just rousing and, you know, I'd kick him out too if he was yeah. making that much noise. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, a, a long time... Ago, people when Leah was on the HSC uh, would get answers which basically were indignant about Leah as if he was some kind of misbehaving old age pensioner, <laughs> you know, who who just didn't Poor know little how thing. yeah didn't know how lucky he was, and and here he is, you know, making a mess and behaving badly, and well, look, he gets what's coming to him. Yeah, and he turns up with a hundred knights that are drunk. Oh, sure. You know, <laughs> come on. I mean, I'd be, yeah, I'd turf him too. <laughs> yeah, well, Lear's not a particular, I don't find Lear a particularly lovable character no. myself. But, you know. He always reminds me of Henry VIII. Yeah. In that Henry VIII is a tyrant that. And, and yeah, yeah, deeply unlovable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. I don't think, though, that Shakespeare necessarily <laughs> been thinking about that. No, but it, well, it's an interesting contrast with the, the play that he co-authors about Henry VIII, which is pretty, as you'd expect, adulatory. But yeah, um, yeah, it, it certainly does have a certain kind of resonance with with Henry VIII. Yeah, and yeah, the the abuse of power. Is it that idea? It doesn't matter how bad you know your your your, your king tyrant is. You know he he's still that still legitimate. <laughs> yeah, he, he's still that legitimate. Um, oh, you know yeah. heir of you know sort of with the with the line stretching back to God sort of thing because um, it's it's otherwise very difficult to countenance uh, because it sort of reflects badly on Cordelia too, really. <laughs> you know, and I think. Um, I mean, it was it was interesting to see the way that, uh, in in many respects, the two sons Edmund and and Edgar, as 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 much as Edmund sort of um, behaved abominably, 
he still seemed to maintain sort of a place of, 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 of some affection and, and then to in the end repent as he does mm. um, was was sort of uh, it, it, it was something just a little bit I mean it wasn't unexpected in terms of repenting but uh, it, it, ju it just made me feel insecure in his characterization all the way through um, added to the fact that uh, you know he absolutely had um, Goneril and uh, Reagan, you know, falling over themselves <laughs> to, to, yeah, to the get bad him. boy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, coming back to to Cordelia, um, I think that brings up your point about Cordelia. Brings up another way of historicizing the play, which is in terms of um, debates about how far a subject can resist the authority of the legitimate ruler in. In, in power and to give you an example of this a bit down the track when James's son Charles I is ruling before one of the battles I mean it might be Naseby I forget which um, and, and both sides are the royalist side and then the let's call them Puritan side are, are lined up against each other What one of the first things they do is they start shouting biblical verses at one another <laughs> And well, as you, you know, do, as you do, yeah, that's right. Come outside a pub one in the morning, get in an argument, start shouting biblical verses <laughs> at one another. So, um, it happens so often, yeah. Um, so what happens is that one side is, is shouting out verses to the effect that God gives you kings, and if there are problems, you put up with it because they're, they're given by God and they're given, if they're bad, they're given to punish you, and um, power shouldn't be questioned. You know, a lot of stuff from Paul and Romans and so on. And then other people are, are shouting out uh, verses about evil kings being murdered and evil kings being abominations and being deposed by God and so on. So there's uh, that comes uh, at the end of, not that it's by any means the conclusion too, but it comes after, I should say, a long debate about a subject's right to resist uh, legitimate power that's exercised illegitimately. And so the whole question of how to respond... See, that's one of the appeals of tyrant tragedy, I think, for Shakespeare's contemporaries. When you look at the tyrant, then one of the questions that comes up is to what extent can you not only dissent from what the tyrant's doing, but can you resist what the tyrant's doing? And Cordelia resists, um, and consequences follow. See, for me, one of the most interesting things about Cordelia's resistance, coming back to Coleridge's point about how like daddy she is, it never crosses Cordelia's mind. What will happen if I say no? By which I mean, what will happen to other people if I say no? She never thinks about anyone else. So Leah says, I want X. How much do you love me? Let's hear it till I want you to stop. And he doesn't care how other people are affected by this mm. the extent to which they believe in it or don't believe in it never crosses his mind uh, the extent to which there might be consequences of dividing his kingdom never crosses his mind when Cordelia confronts Lear and says no and then keeps on saying no and he loses his temper progressively and she keeps on saying well no uh, it never crosses her mind if I say no and the kingdom is divided in two or if I say no and I make all of this, which could be a simple theatrical exercise, a display of politics, 
into something about resistance and about refusal, then what will be the impact on other people? And the bottom line is that as a result of Cordelia's refusal, you get the deaths of thousands of people, including herself. Mm. Right. It sort of really adds that level of intensity and, and, and of pathos, really, doesn't it? Because, you know, sort of a people watching a, a sort of a double bind where it's sort of acknowledging the fact that no, if, if the legitimate power is, you know, sort of crazed, demented, um, then you are still uh, in, in you, are, you are still uh, obliged to, to endure rather sure. than, which, you know, you can sort of understand in terms of affect intensifying um, the, the, the impact of, of, of plays, really. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the whole debate about resistance is widespread, long-standing and intense. So people are well aware of the argumentation that's in the world around them mm. about how you negotiate your relationship with power, which can tell you what to do, but you aren't necessarily going to be happy with everything it tells you to do. And there's a nice link, too, to, to Shakespeare's other... one other play of 1606, Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Well, that's <laughs> right, see. That's exactly right, where you have Macbeth, who in many ways is like James. Yeah. See, old, frail, vulnerable, in and of himself... Interested in witches. <laughs> yes, very interested in witches. Um, in and of himself, not a, a, a heroic figure not uh, the kind of military hero that uh, Macbeth or Macduff is, uh, a man who is revered, but a man who is held in place by obligations. Mm. And when Macbeth violates those obligations, then, as the play pretty much makes clear, almost literally hell breaks loose. Mm. So one of the things that is appropriate to be considered there is that the characterization of Duncan reminds audiences that the ruler may be fragile, may be vulnerable, but if you don't have absolute reason for querying, much less opposing, the rule of an individual, why would you expose your society to, to violence and its consequences by eradicating that ruler. I think that's about all we have time for today, although I now want to do a Macbeth um, podcast as well as a King Lear podcast. Thank you, Tony. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you to Michelle. Thank you. Um, and I just wanted to let you know, listeners, that it would be really fabulous if you could rate and review us on iTunes because um, I know from listening to other podcasts that that's apparently really useful. Um, it helps other people find the podcast and also feedback would be appreciated. We've been doing this for a while now and we've sort of blithely and arrogantly gone on without feedback, but now we probably should ask you what you have to say about From the Lighthouse. So that's us signing off. King Lear, thank you. Bye.